All right, as you turn to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. We have been walking through the book of Daniel this summer and seeing God's people going through exile, disciplined by God because of their continued repeated sin and unrepentance, taken to Babylon, but but not left alone by the Lord in Babylon. He's not abandoned his people. He's continuing to work in the lives of his people, even in exile. We've seen that through the stories of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the first six chapters, as well as these four visions in these last six chapters. You see it in other parts of the Old Testament through the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah that God is not done with his people. He doesn't just throw us to the side and discard us even when we sin. We are His. And this has been true since He first created humanity and we rebelled in the garden and He didn't just dismiss us. He came after us and sent a Redeemer that He promised from Genesis 3.15 and on. As He called sinful men like Abram and Isaac and and Joseph and and Jacob to, to follow Him and to accomplish His purposes as He later called men like Peter and James and John and Paul. Through today and until he returns, his people, he will not abandon. He will go after them and continue to use them to accomplish his purposes because he's in charge of all this. He gets to do that because he's God. And we have this incredible opportunity to join him in his work as his people. So let's walk through these last three chapters today and see this. Daniel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word, and he had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come." When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. 
Behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Father, we thank you for your word. As you spoke to your people 2,500 years ago, so we need you to speak to us. Shine the the light of your spirit upon these, these scriptures so that we can see and understand and receive what you have for us. Father, we want to hear your word. So come, Holy Spirit, and speak. Bring life in this room where there is death. Bring joy where there is brokenness. Bring hope where there is discouragement and bring glory to yourself and how you work and move in your people and through your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What in the world is going on in Daniel 10? (laughs) Right? What is this about? What is happening here? This is uh, the last, this is leading up to the last of the four visions given to Daniel. That were, the vision will basically comprise all of chapter 11, but it begins with this, another time stamp from Daniel, the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So we're in year three of the time where the Jews were beginning to be able to return to Jerusalem. Not all of them were allowed to go, not all of them wanted to go and went, but some did. And we know from Ezra who was part of those who journeyed back and began to help rebuild the city of Jerusalem. We know from Ezra that not only had they returned to begin to do that work, but things had already begun to deteriorate. There was already chaos and turmoil and things were difficult. And this could be the context for Daniel's prayer of 21 days and his fasting and his brokenness and his sorrow. The Jews have finally been allowed to go back. My people are finally being allowed to return from the exile and things are already going south. So let me go to work and begin, begin to pray. Whatever the reason, he eventually journeyed to the great river, river Tigris and there encounters this incredible being with a description that is very similar to the, the man who appeared to Ezekiel in the opening chapter of Ezekiel. In some ways, he's similar to the vision of Jesus that John received at the beginning of Revelation. So who is this guy who appears to Daniel at the great river Tigris? Is it a, a theophany, an appearance of God? Is it a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Godhead? Like a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ? Is it just an angel? Well, it doesn't seem to be God simply from what happens in the story. This person who appears and speaks to Daniel is held up by this prince of Persia being that we'll look at in a little bit for 21 days. That doesn't happen to God. He goes where he wants and does what he wants. And God doesn't need Michael to come and assist him, an angel to come and assist him to overcome this Prince of Persia character. Yet in some ways, the glory and radiance, the strength, the response of Daniel and the men are very similar to encounters with God. I mean, Daniel's men 
don't even see this guy. They don't hear this guy, yet they run and hide from him. Can you imagine something invisible with such power that it emanates from the invisible to, to you in some kind of way? You're like, i got to hide. I've got to get out of here. This is more than I can handle. Like, it's similar to when, when Paul, uh, Saul rather is on the road to Damascus and Jesus appears to Saul in the blinding light. And the men that were with Saul don't, don't see Jesus or hear Jesus. And they are in fear and trembling also. This is unbelievable. Whatever is happening to Daniel in this encounter, this, this is not the vision. This actually happened to him. He's standing on this river. This person appears and his men run and hide because of the power that's emanating from him. Now, real quick, angelology, demonology. Sometime in creation past, God made these beings that we call angels. There's a lot we get wrong about them. Most of probably what you see when you go into a Christian bookstore is probably wrong. But we we have to be careful about saying too much about angels. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot. We know God made them. We know they're spirit beings. We know they're non-human, but in some ways human-like in the fact that they walk and they can talk and communicate. They're made by God to do His work and serve Him. And at some time in creation past... This chief angel, Lucifer, desiring to receive some of the worship that's intended for God alone, desire that in his heart, rebels against God, and he, along with other angels who rebelled with him, were cast out of heaven. These spirit beings, angels, became demons. Lucifer became Satan, the chief adversary of God and his people. The next time we see Satan, he's taking on the form of a serpent, appearing in the garden to to Adam and Eve. Now, apparently what developed is some kind of regional assignment of these demons, because in here we see some referred to as the prince of Persia, or or one referred to as the prince of Greece. Like literally there is some kind of demonic influence behind or in these regions of the world or over these leaders of these kingdoms. And when Daniel begins to pray, this angel who is speaking to him was sent but held up by 21 days by this prince of Persia, this demonic influence over this region of the world. Michael, who is named here as Daniel's prince, who also appears in Jude 9 and Revelation 12, known as an archangel, one of the chief angels in charge with protecting God's people, Michael shows up to help this messenger get past the prince of Persia and deliver this vision to Daniel. And you may be thinking, are you serious? This is real? It isn't just like figurative images supposed to mean something else? Like these things really happen? These beings really exist? Now, the reality is we we don't know much about all of this. The Bible does not tell us much. And so for those who have been over-occupied with this topic, who have tried to spiritually map the world and discover which regional and geographical areas are controlled by which demons, they they try to turn the world into some spiritualized version of risk or or cones of Dunshire or something, these uh, don't understand that, that it's a complete waste of time. That there's no way to understand all the levels and intricacy and, and assignments that demons have given to each other or that God has given to his angels. It, it's a complete, total waste of time. And, and there, therefore, we see the two big mistakes made in dealing with this aspect of the spiritual realm. Either you dismiss it, it's not real. No way it's real. Or you become too occupied by it and you waste time trying to discover and classify angels and demons 
and trying to understand a world that we can't understand. And so, so what is our response to this kind of information about this invisible spiritual world that is existing and in conflict constantly? What do we do with this information? Well, in, in the ways that we can, our response is to join in the battle, just like Daniel was, engaged in the battle. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has come to ultimately bring a kingdom of peace, but it's not a kingdom without conflict. From the rebellion of Lucifer through the battle of Armageddon, there is conflict between light and dark. And we are a part of that, and we have to understand what part we play in that. For instance, in Matthew 3, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, is declaring the, the way of Christ, the, the coming of Christ. He says this in Matthew 3, 11 through 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, that's not the Jesus that we put on flannel graphs. But that's the Jesus that John the Baptist is pointing to. So Jesus comes along. And he's coming to make things right in the eyes of the Jews in the first century. The Messiah is going to come and make things right. He's going to reestablish Israel as the kingdom of the earth. He's going to get rid of the enemies of Israel, much like King David did in the Old Testament. And when Jesus did not come and began to overthrow the Romans, John begins to ask him in Matthew 11, Are you really the one? Or is there another that we should be looking for? Because I've told people this is what you're going to do. And we have this first century Jewish expectation of what the Messiah is going to come to do. And I don't see you doing that. And what does Jesus tell the followers, the disciples of John? In Matthew 11, 4 through 6. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus had come to do battle, but it wasn't battle against flesh and blood armies and flesh and blood people. It was a battle against Satan in the realm where he would truly forever and finally win in the spiritual realm, culminating in a victory that no one saw coming, a victory through physical death on the cross, declaring, it is finished. I have won. It's over. The battle is complete. The war is complete. And the Apostle Paul would elaborate on this saying in Ephesians 16 through 13, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Erroneously, throughout the history of the church, Christians have misread the Bible and at various times have sinfully taken up the sword to fight against who they thought were God's enemy in a way that they thought was God's way. The Crusades, the Inquisitions, the settling of this nation as God's manifest destiny and will for his people while ripping it away from people who are already settled in the land as God's will that we overtake all of this land. But our battle is not with flesh and blood in the spiritual realm. 
So we don't fight with swords, literally physical swords. We fight with the sword of the Spirit. And it's not a passive fight where we just let go and let God, but we are actively standing firm, standing in the Lord, standing against the schemes of the devil, standing and putting on the armor of God. Daniel, in his fasting and praying, is doing battle, not in the strength of his might. He's not barking the the devil around or barking the enemies of God around. But in the strength of the Lord, the passage should encourage us that in our devotion to the Lord, in our prayers, we may be impacting events in the spiritual realm. And we have no idea who is being sent. We have no idea who's being helped, who is fighting. But in our faith, in our trust, in our prayers, in our hoping, we are fighting because we are standing and trusting in the one who's engaged in this battle. Our job isn't to try and figure it out. Like, how are we helping? What exactly is happening? Our job is to do what the the Scriptures have told us to do. To pray, to intercede, to call upon the Lord to do work that only He can do. Trusting that He's he's working. So so if if you're on the email chain from uh, Todd and Tara Thomas, the, the IMB missionary family in Germany, you got an email Friday from Tara. Pray now, immediately. Why? Todd's in a conversation with a family. The wife thinks the husband is demon-possessed, and he needs Jesus. Protect Todd. Open this guy's eyes to the gospel. And so we were able to go and intercede right then, right there, and impact something that's happening in Germany right at that moment. Someone in our missional community posted in GroupMe yesterday, you guys pray. I'm having a conversation with someone who, who needs Jesus. Pray that they'll come alive in Christ. And we were able to go in prayer right then and ask God to do work, to open eyes, to save souls, to change lives, and and intercede and trust that the Spirit of God is working. Maybe angels and demons are also involved. We don't know. But but prayer is, is, as John Piper said, is not an intercom to call down for more treats to the den, but it's a wartime walkie-talkie in direct contact with our commander-in-chief. God, do your work. Do what only you can do. Save people. Change lives. Call people from sin to repentance. And when we pray, we are involved in this. Standing in the strength of the Lord. Trusting Him. And the coolest thing is, for us, the war has been won. Like we're only finishing up the final skirmishes. Like in World War II. D-Day, the Normandy invasion, was, was literally where the war was pretty much won. Once that was successful, it was only a matter of time. The German backs had been broken. But it was another year before they surrendered. Finishing battles had to be finished up. Jesus secured this victory for us on the cross. The outcome is not in doubt. We know where this is headed, as we'll see in a little bit. We are simply tasked with spreading the good news of the victory all over the world. It's good news. He's won. He's won. The battles, the, the war has been won. And, and he can win in your heart and in your life as you repent of your sins and trust in him. Every single day, as you think the enemy is encroaching and filling your mind with fear, worry, anxiety, and doubt, as you are facing temptations that you don't think you can overcome, you once again appropriate the victory of Christ over the enemies in your life, the enemies in your flesh, as you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. 
And you get to experience these little small victories every single day until finally one day we don't have to fight anymore. Because he's already fought. And he's won. Now, Daniel 10 gives us this great motivation to join this battle. And we are a part in humility, love, devotion, sacrifice, and prayer. We fight. Just like it says about Daniel in verse 19. Man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. That's our standing. And that's how we fight. Verse 21 and following shows us the outcome of this battle. This vision given to Daniel, beginning in verse 21. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these against, against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And I will, I will show you the truth. And the truth that Daniel was shown, this vision, was from this mysterious book of truth, and it comprises the rest of Daniel chapter 11. A very, very long, detailed historical prophecy that would essentially describe what would happen in the kingdoms of Persia and Greece from this time of Daniel forward until the Syrian general Antiochus Epiphanes, as we looked at a few weeks ago, and beyond. The last section of Daniel 11 seems to be pointing beyond Antiochus Epiphanes, to the greater, more evil figure, the the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, who will eventually be revealed and then crushed by Jesus. Now, for the sake of time, and it would take an enormous amount of time to read chapter 11 and explain it, I'm not. You can do that on your own this week. One commentator basically said, though, if you read chapter 11, grab any world history book from that period of time, you'll be amazed at the accuracy of this prophecy concerning the kings of the north and the kings of the south. It's like chapter 8 that we looked at, the same time period, just with a lot more detail. The kings of the north being the Seleucid kingdom of the Greeks, the kings of the south, the the Ptolemy, the the Egyptian kingdom of Greece. You even have Cleopatra showing up as one of the historical figures that's mentioned, not by name, in this prophecy. It's just fascinating. So much detail that people who don't believe the Bible is the word of God say Daniel could not have written this in 500 B.C. It had to have been in the second century after these things happened. It's not hard for us who believe the Bible is the Word of God. God knows all things for him to be able to reveal this to Daniel. Now, what's mysterious to us is this document called the Book of Truth that contains written in it with fascinating detail what's about to happen in the next three to four hundred years. Like it's been scripted out and the actors just have to act it out. Is that what we're prone to think? This is hardwired determinism, that this is a script that's been written and we're just players on a stage, just acting out our parts like mindless robots. Is that what's going on? Or some of us may be like, well, where's the chapters about my life? Is there any way I could get information about that? And here we come face to face with this mysterious tension, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, or some would say man's freedom. Like, how sovereign is God, especially in terms of our choices? Attention played out through Scripture. Now, Scripture clearly declares that God is sovereign. It just kind of comes as a package deal when you create everything from nothing. You get to be sovereign over it. The day we create something from nothing, we might be able to say, hey, we can do that too. But it's never going to happen because only God can do that. 
And God is sovereign, ruling and reigning, intimately involved in the details of everyday creation. From the way he designed and created every single animal, every single organism, plant, from the things on the bottom of the sea that nobody can see, the things that we see every single day, how they work in perfect balance with each other. He's intricately involved in our life from knitting us and forming us in our mother's womb to breathing breath, life into us, giving us life, sustaining our life, upholding everything by the word of his power. It tells us in the New Testament. Sovereign even over the seasons and the days and the, and the stars and the, and, the, and the galaxies. Intimately involved in every aspect of creation. And this sovereign, powerful God chooses to work with us to accomplish his purposes. Chooses to work through us to accomplish his purposes when he definitely doesn't have to do it. God didn't need Daniel to, to walk out there to Goliath and throw a rock in his forehead. He could have just, dead. He's dead. God didn't need the Israelites to march around Jericho and blow trumpets to see the walls of Jericho come down. It's not like the, the trumpets created this wall of sound that just resonated the walls and the bricks came tumbling down because of this vibration. God didn't need Gideon to take his 300 men to go conquer the Midianites. God could have just smote them in one instance and it had all been dead. Yet God chooses to work in and through his people to accomplish his purposes. Ultimately, what gets accomplished? His purposes. So Joseph can say to his evil conniving brothers who faked his death and then sold him into slavery and lied to his father in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil. That was your purposes against me. But God meant it for good. God ultimately accomplished his good purpose in my life. Peter could say about the crucifixion of Jesus, Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Your evil purposes was to get rid of this rival. God's ultimate purpose all along was to conquer sin, Satan, and death and establish God's kingdom forever. So what you have is this tension that exists that we simply have to live with. God is sovereign, but not so sovereign that we are puppets and no human will be able to stand before God one day and say, God, I couldn't help but sin. You made me like this. I couldn't help but do these things that are wrong. It's your fault. You, you forced me to do it. You, you, you let me do it. You could have stopped me. No human will be able to say that. We'll, we'll all be held accountable for every choice that we make. But we're not so free, so sovereign, so powerful that our choices will thwart the purpose and plans of God. Somewhere between those two ends of the spectrum, you can figure out how free we really are, how free our choices and real our choices really are. Let the theologians, let the philosophers figure that out. You're you're not going to figure it out. We don't know. So these two things are held in tension. God accomplishing his purposes through the real free choices of men that aren't as free as God's choices, but they are real, so much so we will be held accountable for them. And we live in this Philippians 2, 12 and 13 tension. Therefore, my beloved, as you have also have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work because God is working. And when we're not working, guess who's still working? He's working. Always accomplishing his purpose in our life, even when we don't.
Practically speaking, what does this look like for the Christian? Well, most of the decisions that we make, we have a clear direction on what to do in those situations. So as a Christian, you have relationships, for instance. Now, non-Christians, the, the, the purpose and plan of God for your life is for you to enter into a relationship with Him. For you to re- realize that you're a sinner, you need a Savior to see Jesus Christ alone as the one who died for your sins, took your place, died the death you deserve to die, and then live the perfect righteous life that we fell at every single day so that when you stand before God, you get credit for the righteous life of Christ and Christ paid for your sins and this great exchange takes place where you are now right with God, reconciled with God through Christ, turning from your sins, trusting in Christ. And that brings us into relationship with Christ, adopted into his family as a son. And for the non-Christian, that's what God wants for you more than anything else. It's why he loves you. It's why he's come after you. It's why he has you here today to hear the gospel, to believe the gospel, to come alive in Christ. For the Christian, you have all these relationships that God has given you. You've made peace with God, and now you have family and friends, and you have a local church, and the Bible spends tons of time laying out what it looks like to live and exist in these healthy, life-giving relationships, to, to love each other, to serve each other, repent, to forgive, to not hold grudges against each other, to sacrifice for each other. We are humble. We consider the needs of others more important than our needs. We speak edifying words. We do tons of good and life-giving things for people that we're in relationship with. Quantity time, quality time. We don't do things that are wrong and evil. We, we don't slander. We don't hurt. We don't cut down. We're not malicious. We're not gossips. And a big portion of your life is spent just doing these things in relationships. Like, it's not like we just have these open days and weeks. I don't know what I'm going to do with all my time. You have a lot of people in your relationship with. It's going to take up a lot of your time loving and serving them and receiving love and, 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 and letting them serve you. That's a lot of your time already taken up. And we also have these roles and responsibilities in life. You're a student, a child, a parent, an employee. And we know much from the Scriptures about how to do those jobs and exist in those roles to the best of our ability and the strength and wisdom God gives us to make Him look great in our lives as we work hard to do His work in our lives. And again, just fulfilling these responsibilities day by day, week by week, in these roles and relationships take up 90% of your life. It's not, not that you just have this unfiltered time before you that you've got to figure out how to feel. Just do the things God's given you to do. Love the people around you. Do the jobs He's given you to do. That's most of our life. And when you do that in a healthy way, then you get to those decisions you have to make where you don't know what to do. Who should I marry? Where should I live? Where should I work? What should be my college major? What degree should I get? What church should I attend? Those decisions become much easier if you do the things you know to do day by day, week by week, month by month. Because you have an ear that is attuned to the Lord. You have an ear that is listening to the Spirit of God. You are in the Word communing with your Father in Heaven. You are in His body with wise counsel all around you. People who know you and love you enough to tell you the truth and say, don't go down that path. That's not good. That's not wise. Go down this path instead. We, we see things you can't see. So it's not, you don't have to turn God into this magic eight ball where you got to figure out his will. You're in his will. Just keep doing the things you know to do, listening to the people that God's put around you, listening to the spirit of God guiding you through his word, and you will find yourself in the will of God. 
And you also have this this right understanding of God's sovereignty that you're not going to throw your life or the universe into chaos if you make the wrong choice. Now, if we make a sinful choice, there will be consequences. But as we've seen in Daniel, God is sovereign even over our sinful choices of mankind. And he can still accomplish his purposes in this world and our lives when we blow it. It's not like you sin. He's got to rearrange the universe for you. Great. Plan B. They blew it. We're not that important. Not to make light of sin. We dealt with the weight and seriousness of sin last week in Daniel 9. But we don't have to live in fear that the future of our lives and the world and the human race hinges on us making the right decisions. If we don't get it exactly right, everything collapses. A bigger issue might be this. Like, why in the world are our lives so centered around our decisions that we have to make? A far bigger question is, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Where are you working? And how can I take my life and join you where you're already working? Don't rearrange the universe to help me to know my path. God, where's your path at? Let me go jump on that path with you. Because he's working around us all the time. This is what's being communicated to God's people in Daniel 11. For us, sometimes it's just theoretical. You know, we can sit in coffee shops and pontificate and text, and we've got our whole life before us. But for for God's people, this is very real. They're in exile. They are in bondage. They want to know, when can we go back to the land that you promised us for thousands of years? And God shows them this is how it's going to play out over the next few hundred years. And you can trust me that my rule and goodness for your life is going to work out. If we would consume ourselves with his kingdom instead of our kingdoms. Didn't Jesus say something like this? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. If I consume my life with seeking his kingdom, where are you at? Where's your kingdom? Where are you working? I want to go join you then everything I need to join God in his kingdom work will be provided. You need a degree? I'll give you a degree. Yeah, go work for it. It's not going to just drop in your lap. But I'll guide you to go get a degree. You need a job? I'll provide a job. You need a spouse? I'll provide a spouse. You need children? I'll provide the children. You need a place to live? Finances? I'm going to give you all of that if you just come after me. Interestingly, Jesus said this in the context of what? Do not live in anxiety and fear and worry. Huh. Interesting. The remedy for fear, anxiety, and worry over all these things is found in pursuing God in his kingdom. Trusting him to provide every single thing we need to follow him and obey him. Trusting that he can sovereignly do that. Daniel 11 shows us this picture of God who knows with amazing accuracy what's going to happen in the world kingdoms over the next 400 years with a bunch of sinful pagan people. And for his people living in bondage and exile, promised by God that this would eventually end, they can find comfort, not in God giving them the answers to their personal self-focused questions, but boldly declaring to his people, I've got this. I'm in charge of this. This is what I'm doing. You think if I care about these worldly kingdoms led by sinful pagan rulers, how much more do I care about you, my people, whom I've called and created, and I am your God. Trust me. 
I'm working and moving and accomplishing my purpose in your life. This isn't random chaos, guys. Your life is not random chaos. You're not just being thrown around by the waves of craziness, the ups and downs of life. There's a purpose and plan behind every single thing you are in and you will encounter. Look to your Father. Trust your Father. See His sovereign, mighty, powerful, loving hand guiding your life. And seek Him. We get a glimpse of where this is headed. It's not random chaos, but very purposely, intentionally headed somewhere. Where is it headed? Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen, has been seen, never has been, since there was a nation to that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to, right, unrighteous, to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it will be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days, but go your way to the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days." In Daniel 10, we saw the cosmic kingdom clashing. In Daniel 11, we saw earthly kingdoms clashing. And in this final part of the vision, we see an eternal kingdom coming. Verses 3 through 4, you have the clearest and best picture in the entire Old Testament of the double resurrection. The godly being raised to bliss and life, the wicked being raised to punishment and judgment. There's only a few other passages in the Old Testament that even hint at this, and they only Hint, this passage declares. Now you also see some curious time references here also, uh, in verse 7, a time, times, and half a time. In verse 11 and 12, 1290 days, 1335 days. And as we've seen with all these kinds of dates, and, and even more so with these, no one knows. I mean, just boil it all down, no one knows. No one has a clue what any of this is referring to. Um, anyone who says, for sure this is it, have an arrogance about their biblical interpretation that should give you great caution. 
Now, some will take verse 4 and try to make a case that knowledge is going to increase. And, and now, now this generation, not the other generations before us, but this generation knowledge has increased because we're, we're at the very end and we've unlocked the secret of the prophecy of Daniel that's been sealed up. We've figured it out. Right. Go, go ahead with that. Do the best you can with that. Um, probably the best explanation of these time references are the, the reign of the wicked will eventually dwindle down time, times, and half a time, and the righteous will persevere beyond the wicked 1,335 days compared to 1,290 days. There are probably some allusions here to what's going to take place in the Persian and Greek and Roman kingdoms through Antiochus Epiphanes when he set up the abomination that makes desolate in the the Holy of Holies, an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig on that altar. It's probably an allusion to when that was repeated in some kind of way by Titus around the time that Jerusalem was conquered in 70 AD and probably repeated again in some kind of way in the future. All that's probably being alluded to, but but it's, it's, it's looking forward to the kingdom of Christ and the ultimate vanquishing of the kingdom of darkness. So, but instead of focusing and speculating on what's not clear, let's focus on what is clear. There's going to be an end to the suffering of God's people and the prosperity of the wicked. This is all headed somewhere. You know, we say things like, you know, study history, you're doomed to repeat it. It's not because like all of history, human history is in these cycles that just keep cycling on and on forever and ever. We, we're doomed to repeat history because we're sinful. Humans are, have always been sinful. And there's nothing new under the sun. We keep doing the same dumb things over and over. It's not because history is just cycling over and over in all these civilizations forever and ever. History is linear. It's headed somewhere. There's going to come a point in time where this present age will end. The world, the universe, as we know it, will not be the same as it is now. There's going to come a point in time where things are not going to be the same. And and the end result is mentioned there in verse 1 through 3. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. One day, all accounts will be settled. One day, a trumpet will sound and the Lord will appear. One day, this present age, as we know it, will end in a new age, an eternal state will begin, and it is going to be different. One day, the the wicked will no longer prosper. Sin will no longer run amok. One day, death, chaos, disease, sickness, brokenness, and all the other effects of the curse of sin will no longer seemingly run wild in our lives. One day, life and light and joy and bliss will characterize the lives of God and His people for all time, and it will never end. And these people living 2,500 years ago needed to hear this, and we needed to hear this. That in the midst of chaos and pain and brokenness and death, this is headed somewhere. What you're experiencing right now is not always going to be like this. Thank God. Thank you, Lord. That what we're experiencing right now is not always how it's going to be. Because sometimes it feels like it. 55 million babies slaughtered in our country in the last 46 years. Thousands of children without homes to live in. The state doing the best they can in foster homes. 
continued sins of racism and greed and systematic inequalities that make the land of opportunity more opportune for some than others. Oppression, violence, poverty doesn't feel like winning a lot of times. Having to say goodbye to Tammy Slauson this week. Having to say goodbye to people that we love. Doesn't feel like we're winning at times. A friend of Jennifer's she grew up with in her 30s, four kids, died of cancer. Husband now to raise the four kids and send them off into the world without their mom. A man like Nabil Qureshi, 34-year-old former Muslim who came to know Christ in college and spent the last decade of his life proclaiming Christ to the Muslim populations through Ravi Zacharias' ministry. Died this week of cancer, leaving behind his wife and his, his little baby girl. Like, why is this better? If we're, if we're really honest, we can be tempted at times to say, you know, God, I know you're sovereign over everything, but if you would allow me, I have a few pointers. <laughs> why, why are you taking these people home? Doing hospice work, seeing people who don't give a rip about God, living into their 70s. Why are they allowed to live? And, and you're calling your saints home where they're doing so much good work for Jesus. And we come face to face with this God of the scriptures, this God of people who's sovereign over all. And he, we know he's good and we know he loves us and we know he's wise, even when it doesn't feel like it. And it's not that like one day he's going to answer our questions. One day it all makes sense. When, when's that day coming? One day we'll know. Who says we're going to know? God is not good and wise and loving to us because he answers our questions. He's good and wise and loving. Period. And so we trust him with the chaos that is in the lives of people that we love and in our lives. And we see what he himself has done to remedy our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is not the chaos that we're experiencing. Our greatest problem is the chaos that's right here. The fact that we are rebellious and we are sinful and we are wicked and all we deserve is God's wrath that God himself came and took our punishment and gives us life through his son so that we can be reconciled to him and a part of these people who are living for this coming kingdom. And we, when we experience this pain, we see passages like Daniel 12 and we're confronted with this question, are we truly living for eternity? Are we truly living for this coming kingdom? Are we content to put all of our hope and joy and satisfaction in our little kingdoms in this life? What are you living for? Let's do all we can to make these 70 years as amazing as we can with little to no thought of what's next. And it's not that we always have to pick and choose. This is not an either or thing. We can do both. Jesus was drunken and a glutton by the religious establishment because he spent so much time hanging out in the houses of sinners, partying with them. But that was never what defined his life and his mission. It was always a deeper purpose behind everything he did. We can live in this world, but not be of this world. 
We can live citizens of these earthly kingdoms, but be true citizens of another kingdom. We grieve those that we lose and genuinely grieve because they're sad to say goodbye. And it's, like, it's not like we have this happy, clappy, uh, pie-in-the-sky false theology where, where we tell people, why are you sad? They're with Jesus. You shouldn't be sad. They're much better. You should be happy. No, we grieve. And, and life hurts and stinks, and we can be honest about that. Because, because we understand the bigger picture. We see beyond the sadness and the grief. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal we've been given the whole script we know where all this is headed so we live with this hope that is from the unseen realm that is from god but we're not apathetic and lazy we're engaged in the battle because we know god is accomplishing his purposes in us and through us and so we go in all the nations proclaiming the good news. The pain, the suffering, the death, the chaos, the sin do not win. Christ is one. Repent and believe in him. In the final verse, verse 13. But go your way to the end, Daniel. Christian, just keep living your life. You shall rest, you shall die. The day's coming. But you will rise. And you will stand, and you will get your inheritance at the end of days. Keep doing what I've created you and called you to do. And one day all things will be made right. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that death and sin, chaos, pain, and hurt do not win. Because you have won. You desire to win more and more in our lives, in our hearts, in our cities, in our nations. As more and more come alive in Christ, and more and more repent of their sin and trust in Christ, in more and more areas of their life. So God, make that happen in us. Do that here today. Do this for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to respond in song, sharing in this meal with us in a little while, giving of your tithes and offerings, most of all repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to talk to today, we're available. Come see me, Kendrick in the back, or whoever you came with. Before you leave, respond in faith to how the Spirit of God has spoken to you today.